0: Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter one, what's a pilot's worth? Sometimes we have to earn a whole year's pay on a single flight. So that's why they pay us high salaries. So says a captain, a sudden celebrity following his miraculous feat of airmanship. Many a pilot has said something like this, usually amid glaring lights, thrusting microphones, and scribing reporters. In a modern setting, the press conference would follow an utterly routine flight that had abruptly turned sour. There would have been no prior hint of trouble. The flight attendants in the cabin would have been serving drinks, the first officer monitoring the assigned frequency, and the captain keeping an experienced eye on everything else. Not a worry in the world for these skilled people at the peak of their professions. Then suddenly, the moment of truth. It always comes without warning and could be anything from an engine failure to a system's malfunction. The only common denominator in this scenario, whether it happened aboard a Ford Tri-Motor in 1929 or on a wide-body jumbo the day before yesterday, is that life and death hang precariously in the balance. Airline pilots have created their own traditions. They see themselves as calm, mature individuals who leave nothing to chance and who never panic if things go wrong. An important part of this self-image is a feeling that if push ever comes to shove, I can handle it. This has sometimes led to trouble, but more often it's constituted the hidden reserve that has enabled quite ordinary pilots to accomplish amazing feats in a crisis, avert disaster and return their shaken passengers somehow to mother earth. This attitude was born in the days of wooden wings and is still bred into airline pilots today. The success of commercial air passenger service has always depended to an extraordinary degree, on the public's acceptance of this special mystique. Even today, a passenger boarding an airliner believes, tucked away in the back of his mind, that his particular pilot, on his particular flight, will be able to handle the danger he half expects to occur. In short, a passenger bets his life that his pilot is a worthy heir to an ancient tradition of excellence and professionalism. The public also believes that airline pilots earn high wages because their employers appreciate their ability to overcome an occasional emergency, and pilots themselves often encourage this notion. It ought to be true. Airline pilots should be well paid solely for the skills they possess, the training they've received, and the responsibilities they bear, and in an ideal world, they would be. But in the real world, people get paid what they are worth only if they have the muscle to command it. Skill, courage, and devotion to duty have less to do with why modern professional airline pilots have the best salary jobs in the world than do history and the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA is first and foremost a labor union, an affiliate of the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. Or the AFL-CIO. It's also a unique professional association that has made enormous contributions to the air transportation industry, particularly in the safety realm, but that is something of a byproduct. ALPA's primary function has always been to make sure pilots got a decent wage. The corollary to this pursuit has been to see that they lived long enough to spend it. ALPA's founder and first president, David Banke, knew from bitter experience how easily a clever airline boss could lure pilots away with sweetheart deal and personal plums. What kind of people created Alpa and nurtured it to today? How do we explain the courage it took to hold the center when the flanks were giving way? Whence came the integrity of the century airline pilots who defied the industrial power of Eret L. Cord in 1932? Amidst the Great Depression, with millions unemployed, Cord knew there would be plenty of pilots out of work, so why shouldn't they be willing to work for a competitive wage? Cord figured a fair market wage, given the degree of unemployment, would be about $150 per month. When his Alpa pilots resisted the wage reduction, he replaced them. In the economic climate of 1932, it was no trick at all to get replacement pilots. No concerted effort by an employer to replace his pilots has ever failed for want of eager applicants, or on economic grounds alone. But despite this, Cord's pilots fought him. And what made Howard E. Sunnyboy Hall challenge Jack Fry's company union on transcontinental and western air in 1933— Hall had been a loyal employee since the days when TWA was known as Transcontinental Air Transport and stopped flying at dusk to transfer passengers from Ford Trimotors to trains. He had helped organize the pilots of TWA into Alpa during a frenetic burst of activity in 1932. He then made the mistake of going on a two-week vacation. When he came back to work, Everyone who declined to join the new TWA Pilots Association was in trouble. Some got fired. Others simply ducked, paid their dues quietly, and gave lip service to the company-approved association. Hall did none of these, and because he was so senior and respected by his fellow pilots, Jack Fry dared not fire him openly. There was a simpler solution— TWA transferred Hall to an unfamiliar route half a continent away. And rather than the Ford trimotors he was accustomed to, he was assigned to flying open cockpit planes over terrain he was unfamiliar with at night. They hoped I'd either quit or worse yet get killed, Hall remembered in an interview years later. My wife cried when I was transferred from Kansas City to Newark. She thought she was going to be a widow for sure. Management played hardball in those days, but Hall persevered. By 1933, ALPA was flexing its muscles and beginning to have some influence in Washington. Hall would fly on and retire from TWA after a full career. While some pilots hung tough, others folded, and it is a mistake to view ALPA's early history as an uninterrupted success story. There was a lot of human wreckage in the beginning. Pilots who were out front serving as ALPA officers were really asking for trouble. As of the first three national officers, not a one kept his job with his airline. So why did they do it? What made a man like Byron S. Pop Warner defy the conventional wisdom of the era? In 1929, Warner had what he wanted above all else, a pilot's job with national air transport. He was a university graduate, a trained engineer, and although he loved flying, the relatively low pay, poor working conditions, and the company's lack of appreciation for the pilots' contributions bothered him. When he met Captain Benke, the hulking six-footer who was talking up a new pilots' association, Warner knew immediately it had to be a union, not another toothless semi-social pilots' club. I could see that unless we got a pilots association with real power, Warner remembered, there wouldn't be enough money in airline flying to make it worth my effort. I would have to go back to slip sticking at a desk. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to keep flying. So Warner was a rapid convert to Banky's cause. He could readily see that all this talk about airline pilots being high class professionals who didn't need a union was just a smokescreen. Operating under the code name Mr. A, Warner successfully organized the pilots of national air transport in 1931. Then he got fired, as management spies were good at figuring out the cover names of ALPA's 24 key men, as Banky called them. It was an angry, frustrating time, but Warner was among the lucky ones. He got another airline job, and he went on to fly a full career. The same cannot be said for an unlucky one like George Hayes. He stood up for ALPA at his airline in 1934, and like Warner, he too was fired. By 1934, the New Deal's labor protective machinery was operating effectively. So Hayes appealed his dismissal. In one of its first uses of professional staff, ALPA sent a representative down from Chicago to Fort Worth where the National Labor Board held hearings on the dismissal of Hayes and two other pilots. On paper, it was a great success. ALPA won the legal battle when the NLB ordered Hayes reinstated. But while ALPA was busily contesting the illegal firing of pilots for union activities, the owner of Hayes's company sold out to Braniff, who took over the post office airmail routes, but did not keep the pilots. There was nothing ALPA could do. Hayes was left jobless with ALPA supporting him with a meager monthly payment raised from members by a special assessment. While that alone was embarrassing, it was compounded by the humiliation of Hayes having to fall back on his parents for support at the age of 28. Amidst the Great Depression, when the despair of unemployment was epidemic, Hayes feared that standing up for his legal rights had caused other airlines to blacklist him, and that he would never be able to find another flying job. One day in 1936, George Hayes went out to his car, sat down in the front seat, and shot himself through the head. These hard times required some sassy politicking on Benke's part, and it always bothered some pilots who liked to think of themselves as nonpartisan. Banky spent much of his life trying to educate pilots The airline business was highly political, unable to survive in those days without direct government subsidy, and Banky, who was from Chicago after all, knew about the role clout played. As he began to take his first halting steps towards representing pilots in Washington, D.C., he found himself facing people with formidable political connections, hard characters like the legendary Eddie Rickenbacker of Eastern and American steely-eyed Cyrus Rallett CR Smith. Many pilots didn't like the way Banky criticized their employers when testifying before congressional committees, nor how he glorified politicians who aided him. Being a realist, however, Banky found this kind of political soft-headedness contemptible and openly pursued a shifting series of alliances based on the principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend. His approach to politics was always, frankly, opportunistic. It doesn't matter where the coal comes from, Banky once said, as long as it gets on the fire. Politically, the bane of Banky's existence, just as now, was the kind of pilot who could not understand that there was no political safe ground and that Alba must choose on some issues. Most pilots don't know any more about politics than they do pink tights, Banky once grumbled. The old man had a way with words. Every airline pilot working today owes a substantial debt to those who came before. Men whose names they do not know, who sweated and fought to make ALPA what it is today, sometimes at great personal cost. A long series of beacon lights wink out of the past at modern airline pilots, marking a rough and perilous course flying it again would be tough the airline pilots of today owe it to themselves to know their own history warts and all thank you for listening this has been chapter one of flying the line by george e hopkins we hope you've enjoyed this podcast To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is Flying the Line Podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association.